0: Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and we've got another amazing guest on our show. She is the co-founder of Virtual Brain Health Centers, co-host of the podcast, Let's Talk Brain Health, and is a massive brain health crusader advocate. Welcome to the show, Dr. Crystal. Caller, how are you doing today?
1: I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you in your podcast today.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Now you are so passionate about brain health that recently you have published a children's brain health book as well. <laughs> Didn't you?
1: You know, it's interesting how when you start doing work and you're working in one population with my background in gerontology and cognitive aging, has been adults and later life adulthood. And then right. had the influence of spending my summer with my brilliant little niece, who's five. Aww. And I was observing all the things she was doing to take care of her brain or the things she was asking for. So, from my adult observation, what are people doing to nurture their brain at different ages? And how do we help support that? And learned a lot from her. And even now, as she's entered kindergarten, she tells me they take brain breaks, and she has busy boxes. And those are some of the highlights of her day. And so I thought, younger people are asking about brain health or taking action. How can we help reinforce that? And I think aligns with your conversations as well that you have on the podcast is how do we teach kids some of that science that encourages those healthy behaviors so they can nurture those habits for lifelong sustainability rather than when we get to adulthood. And we don't ask for quiet time. We would surely benefit from some quiet time or taking a brain break, but we're not asking for it in the same way. And how can we be more intentional with building some of those healthy habits long term?
0: Well, we don't ask for it, but it shows up, doesn't it like uh you you never see grown adults pouted or feel miserable or <laughs> run yes. down and uh so, how is working with your niece kind of uh taught you to to take care of your brain health then
1: yeah, you know that's a wonderful question. I was watching just what she intuitively does how children explore and play and time outdoor in natures. But then, you know, the very important, curious questions where we're on a nature walk and how do frogs sleep? Great question. I don't know. But now with technology, we can come back inside and, and learn about that and continue that thought, which sleep's an important part of our brain health and recognizing how we all need to rest in some way. So it set me on this whole new learning or relearning journey of Information I probably picked up somewhere but haven't used in a long time. <laughs> Thinking about, from my background, brain health in adulthood and just the overlaps and what we are doing and the lifestyle behaviors and factors of what's the science show that's good for people of all ages. It comes back to our brain health basics breathing, nutrition, right? Sleep, movement engaging the brain and when working with kids is they're excited to learn so it's a very you know kind of running parallels having worked with more older adults that are so excited for lifelong learning and what are some of those parallels that we just want to set up for you know sustainable behaviors that are natural parts of our lives where we're curious and we want to have fun and we take those breaks and so she really taught me about taking those breaks but also Enjoying the benefits of when we unwind and go on a walk, the creativity that comes afterwards, and you know the science shows us this. But until I think we experience it and fold it into our lives, we say we know now how these breaks are so important, or important for me because how I feel afterwards.
0: Right now, that's that's so impactful, important for for me. Um, and yeah, your niece kind of is keeping you interested in this brain health field and adding to your passion, but in the terms of, for me, uh, how did you get started into this world of just, I need to explore this and get this information out to people to make their lives better too. What sort of happened with you along the, the journey, the pathway that that led you this way?
1: I think we've had a conversation before about our careers And you don't always see the linear path or how life events are connected until you get to a certain place in your life. And for children, I thought when we initially were embarking on that, I'm like, this seems like a stretch. And then I look back and I'm like, I started working with children with developmental disabilities and autism when I was 17. That was my work doing applied behavior analysis. Did direct caregiving for, for people on our service waivers of our state for like a decade, Supporting people with a wide variety of brain-based conditions from traumatic brain injury, epilepsy, different spectrums of autism and developmental disabilities. And I'm like, it's come back to kids. I used to substitute teach for kindergarten when I was doing my (laughs) program in knowledge and ABA. And so I thought it kind of all came full circle of a population that sparked my interest in social sciences and psychology. Because when I first entered college, I didn't know that. I was a biochem major wanting to hopefully do like medical school. So talk about a, a pivot very quickly. But you find things that spark your passion in different ways. And just watching how brain health broadly impacted myself when I was in graduate school. Last semester, last class from my PhD. And I had a grand mal seizure. What? And so that really... Pause A some grand things. ball. Yeah, what just
0: happened? Like, what 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 occurred? Like, did you stress yourself out that badly?
1: No, I think it was one of those. When I look back on health and well being, we talk about epigenetics and lifestyle and like the perfect storm. It was just slowly some things coming to the surface. I I just got married, but I was with two years without health insurance um, between graduate school and using student health. Had a couple different sinus infections that were treated, ended up with a skin infection, multiple adverse reactions to antibiotics, (laughs) Fainting from my blood pressure, going too low, all of these different things that when I look back, I was like, I was a sitting nightmare um, for something to happen, but not necessarily realizing it because I was used to a course intensive schedule. I was used to working a couple different jobs and there's not time to stop per se in grad school because it keeps. Going, I was preparing for comprehensive exams, which is the last part, of your PhD for us before you start your dissertation. So just all these things, not realizing the stress and load you were carrying. And I look back, uh, mine was a side effect. They finally rolled out, I had a genetic issue where I don't metabolize a particular med that triggered the grand mal <laughs> seizure. Oh, wow. That took about two years to get answers to in our US healthcare system. But Luckily, it was an isolated event, but you know, no driving for six months. Had to go on medical leave from school because I look back, things were just a blur. I couldn't think, didn't read, was up for days and then would sleep for days. I wasn't getting up to go to the bathroom, like just a storm. And I kind of look back of it forced my brain to reset, like my own brain had to misfire to redirect me to something that I probably just wasn't tuning into as much of. I thought I would be an academic and a researcher that was undergrad school. That's the linear plan. And then I realized there's a lot of information that comes from science that can still help people. And I liked working with people. (laughs) And so I thought, how can I blend the two? And then finished a more applied degree that allows me to go out and build programs and services and better understand our healthcare system and ways to bring different team members together and a much more holistic view of the brain than my traditional training.
0: Right. Now, with this experience, though, you mentioned holistic and understanding the health system. Uh, With brain health, it's it's a mess, isn't it? There's a lot that uh, is happening, but a lot that needed to happen decades ago, right?
1: Yeah, and I think I look back to what kind of sparked my interest of why I was thinking of the social sciences. And at the time I was working, a young man with autism, he was five. Wasn't reading wasn't really nonverbal. And I worked two years with him doing his applied behavior analysis in-home program. And next thing you know he was reading on a second grade level at five, five years old, becoming much more verbal with requests and his emotion. And what hurt was the state came in to do his evaluation and plan. And they said, well, he's living with autism. He goes to school till he's 22. And then he goes to our local county workshop. And back in this was 2003, 2004. So definitely has been some time. And I thought, this whole kid's life has been planned out. And yet his brain is learning and making these gains. It's very hard to predict from five, but it was, this is just what it is. And remember I went home and I cried to my mom and I'm like, I don't understand. I don't know how to help. And she's like, you'll, you'll figure it out. And when I got to college, I did my paper on aging with autism and realized how many gaps there were in services. And that shifted me to the field of how do we help people as they age across the continuum? So I had this always lifespan approach, but when I look back on that moment, I realized very young. The gaps in the system, and the families are feeling it. The individuals are feeling it, and you're thinking long-term trajectory. How different people's lives look. Uh, but when you plan it, and I reflected on myself, if you would have planned my life when I was five, I would not be in this field um, doing the work that I'm doing. But you know, you kind of have those comparisons or those anchor points, and you look and you think we're really missing the mark. How do we do this better? And that's kind of always been my mantra of how to help or improve this for the person that's coming behind me or the families we can support now. And we can have change pretty quickly in some small ways that support people, which is exciting in brain
0: health. It's massively exciting. And I think you touched on so many things right now is that uh, you were a grad student and had things fall apart on yourself. And then you're talking about somebody with autism and who's got a diagnosable condition. And there is this continuum, basically, between pathology and peak performance. And all of it is brain-related. So when we mention that, yeah, brain health is for everyone, it it really is, isn't it? And uh, what's kind of your view of uh, how... Each individual, regardless of what is going on, needs to focus and concentrate on on their brain and how they can make it as healthy as possible so they can enjoy life.
1: Now, I appreciate you kind of sharing what you reflected on from my previous comments, mainly because when we started this work for Virtual Brain Health Center, I thought, what's our philosophy of care? What drives us to do what we're hoping to do and achieve in the world? And it was that brain health is for everyone. And for me, that just seems so intuitive. But I take for granted my background of working with such diverse populations and and their families. And for a lot of people, when you step into the space to say brain health for all of us, for anyone with the brain, there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of still misinformation about the brain, brain brain-based diseases as well. And people not realizing we can have these smaller impacts We're all hydrated properly. Our brains are doing better (laughs) and our bodies are doing better. There's very simple things, but yet for some reason, sometimes people look at an individual and they might see what they share about their brain story or a diagnosis and think, well, this idea of brain health and well-being is not for you because you have a chronic health condition, you have a neurological-based condition, or you know, this just doesn't seem to fit what people's normal train of thought was. And so I thought. I'm willing to take up the good fight on that because when I reflected on myself, if someone said brain health wasn't for anyone with a chronic health condition or brain-based disease, I can't think of one of my family members that doesn't have something that they manage from MS to mental health to pituitary gland tumors to you know diabetes and heart disease that if we had that as the main criteria that you have to have kind of the clean health slate, who's left for brain health, or it's a very elite group um, (laughs) at some point, because I would even suspect people with good health may still have some type of brain health related concerns where they want to improve their nutrition or they're not sleeping well. Uh, But, you know, on the outside, there's no diagnosis per se for this in, in the medical or mental health spaces. And so, I think that's what's driven a lot of those conversations is really advocating and educating people. It is for everyone, even people late stage with neurological conditions. I've worked with Alzheimer's disease and dementia and advocating even in those populations, we all have a right to the tenets of brain health.
0: Right. And when you say rights for it, I, I couldn't agree in- anymore. And you you really struck a chord in me when you said that the peak performers, that uh, there's nothing noticeably wrong with them. And I think this is where our sick care system really falls in uh, apart on this, is that you take somebody who's a high performer, whether they're an athlete, a grad student, um, a mom who's, who's raising children, anyone who's just kicking butt and something happens to them but when they go and seek help or care it's all about a diagnosed line and that if they don't reach a certain line of dysfunction then there's nothing available and well you take somebody who's used to performing that way and now they're told well no you have to compensate you you have to go back in function and just make things work. And I, I think that's almost criminal to to take something so dear to people. And even though they're performing better than maybe of some people out there, they're not performing the way they want to. And this really goes into, well, how do we make changes to anybody's brain and you've spoken to a lot of different people. What are some of the things that have made you like really excited to, to just that it's going to help once again, a huge chunk of the population.
1: I think it's been the shift in brain health and how we're defining it now. It's, it's a term, it's a buzz term. It has increased thousands of times in, you know, Google searches and, WebMD of uh, information, PubMed, sorry, information, and just seeing it used in research literature as well. But the previous definition didn't really include people with those chronic health conditions or brain based conditions. It was really focused on your brain health's about this peak performance, the skills you want your brain to perform for you, your focus, attention, memory, your learning. And it was so focused on more of these cognitive outputs. Rather than this bigger picture of your brain's not going to perform well if you're not sleeping well, if you're not nourishing it, if you're not breathing properly, there's all of this bigger view that kind of brings it out from this small target on brain health. So I really am optimistic with the World Health Organization and others broadening that perspective back to the one we've had about health and well-being since the early 1940s, that it's psychological, social, behavioral, and physical health. And right. that's been brought back into the definition and conversation on brain health. So I really think that opens up the floor for all of us to step in to the conversation or be a part of it and recognize how brain health is important to our own health and well-being. So I've been very optimistic about that shift. The education part, I think, has been very big um, or heavy on a lot of us in the field where you know that just... Doesn't sound as intuitive to a lot of people, and that's how they've been trained, or that's the information they've received or have been a part of for so long. So, changing that narrative is a shift, but I really think we're getting there. A lot of people are open to wanting to know about brain health and how to care for themselves, their loved ones, people they're supporting, or their community, and how they're making decisions all the time can influence that. So, just a quick example that is like when people have groups. Maybe not bringing in the donuts, but bringing in a healthier snack and seeing how people engage in that group so it's not the end of the group time and everyone's in that carb coma, as we call it um, at times. But your metabolic health has gone up and down and then your cognitive performance isn't matching what you're trying to do in the social setting or situation. And we can be more intentional with that for some of the things we have and recognize we have a little bit of influence, not only in our lives, but some of the things we're doing that invite people in to more brain healthy behaviors together.
0: Nice. And I love how you're tying in the educational component and mentioning, yeah, there's a physical side of it as well. And we can provide information to help people out. Um, But two, it's kind of a double-edged sword. We want to educate people on brain health, brain disorders. Um, At the same time, though, and... I look back to your educational background and being in an educational uh, setting where you're 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 trying to educate children with autism and on the spectrum. And I go back to my teaching days when I was in a behavioral uh, modification classroom, uh, where basically I saw every neurodevelopmental disorder before I went clinical side, and it baffles my mind that a lot of this has been passed on to the educational field to almost provide clinical services to help these children out. um, Can you maybe speak to, uh, well, the frustration many teachers have with brain disorders, and then how do we get from... The, the model of just passing it back and forth from the education to the healthcare system. Is there maybe a hybrid approach that we should be looking looking more into?
1: I think that's a beautiful question. And one I knew when I had my training, it had my seizure event. I thought, I'm missing the education on healthcare systems and policy for like that bigger change. Because, you know, in academia, you're trained for something very specific and you you pick your line of research. And I thought that's what I needed. So that's how I shifted to my doctor in behavioral health with a focus on healthcare management was I thought those systems and policies that drive the services and then the gaps between behavioral health and mental health services, as well as where you go to our traditional medical care systems and what's not working. And through my own journey, I suspect this may have influenced you too, but realizing how many people are looking for, other things to support. And I do give credit to my mentor um, in graduate school, Dr. Paula Hartmanstein. She was a clinical psychologist, and I, I got to do some work with her in her brain gyms for a few years. But recognizing then that all she kept saying was, I want a pad where I can prescribe my patients to go on a walk or to exercise because that's the most effective antidepressant we have. And even though I can prescribe you these meds, it's very hard I think, in most settings to not talk about medications with lifestyle and behavior change. And she just kept envisioning that there would be a time where you could just prescribe these things to to patients. And now we have electronic health records that let you put in these recommendations that are more personalized as well. But I think we're slowly starting to get there. But recognizing a lot of the systems we have in place aren't driven by the brain science. If we think about school start times for specific age groups, it doesn't fit <laughs> their development or the traditional circadian rhythm. And yet we're putting people in their brains and their bodies in these environments, expecting high performance. And we have enough science now to show this isn't science driven decisions. These are functions of other things. What's, what's convenient or what's expected, but Following some of that research with what schools have done, I think, with start times, creating meditation rooms or quiet spaces, learning breathing. I was so impressed when I recently traveled with my niece and she sticks her little hand out and gives me a five and shows me how you trace it and you breathe in and out. And it's thinking they're getting these skills in schools. And some of the teachers are really taking into the developmental neuroscience, the the psychology and blending them into the classrooms with their curriculum. But I think she's sitting here showing me how she's learning to breathe. And then she's telling me that she likes her brain breaks and busy boxes, which are just the design brain breaks where they can tinker and play being part of that school curriculum and how it's embedded in their day to day. I'm really excited to see more of the science shifting for that. I think we're seeing the different inroads being highlighted of Now the science has shown us some best practices. How can we really put it in place for impact of the age groups we're trying to serve? Students, teachers, and their parents.
0: I love it. And yeah, that's another reason I I toss that question at you is you have that, that experience with both policy education and actually living and knowing some of the research out there on how to improve brain function and health. I, I think it's fascinating what you, what you bring to the table there and what you're promoting. Um, what are some of the avenues that you're, you're, uh, reaching out to people of all ages, all abilities, uh, with all the different products? Like you've got a podcast, you got a book club, uh, what else is on the go with you? And, uh, uh, what are the ways you're you're getting this message out to people and really impacting and improving and empowering people to, to take control over their brain health?
1: I appreciate your question, because when we first were thinking the idea of a virtual brain health center, um, my counterpart Leanne and I's background was in senior living. And so we thought this makes sense. Plus, we'd spent a lot of time, that was some of my specialty area in cognitive aging, psychology of cognitive aging. And so those age groups made sense. But then we realized sometimes what people are trying to do in their business models don't necessarily align. And so as broad as it says, the things we've been able to do in about the past three and a half years is support people really of, of all ages with a wide variety of brain health concerns or just an interest in wanting to know how to better take care of their brain. So it really helped us pivot to a a life course perspective. But when I reflect back on my training and experience, I go, this makes intuitive sense. Kids learn with their parents or with their grandparents. And if we all start to have some of these conversations, how different that can look. And so we have had opportunities to support a school-based project with Florida brain health program and initiative there, kindergarten through high school, helping them with some of their information that's going out about brain health, working with workplace wellness programs. So really educating anyone in the workplace for some of that and still doing programs in senior living or active aging adult groups that invite us. And so it's really been a journey for us to just keep the message about brain health, but help people get those specific examples for how it's working in their lives, knowing that we have some different phases and stages, but we all can take up that charge for better brain health. So that's been really exciting. And really what we keep doing is following where people take us or what they're asking for. So the next project we have, which I'm hoping you will be a part of too, is we're building out a brain health directory to help connect people to experts in brain health organizations or researchers. Based on the type of work they're doing, from functional neurology to nutrition to performance to habits, because people keep coming because you can get on Google, but it can get real scary real fast, (laughs) is what the feedback we tend to get around brain health. And they're looking for things that are very specific. So we're working to build out this directory of where we can bring all the partnerships and experts we've met over the years of our work and say, okay, if you're looking for a health coach, here's what you can do. If you want to know more about podcasts, here's some ones you can look at that have conversations about the brain or healthy aging and really start to leverage our collective network of our brilliant colleagues and peers and elevate us all together to raise this tide around brain health. And we're hoping this wouldn't keep things as siloed, but can be very complementary to what people are doing and be a good resource for people. A lot of the feedback we get is people just don't know where to start. Or unfortunately, the misinformation online causes a lot of fear and worry. So how we can help maybe alleviate some of those and support people on their lifelong journey to brain health for themselves, their families and their communities.
0: Nice. I love it. What's been some of the feedback then that you've been getting and uh, some of the success stories people are are telling you uh, from from the work you've, you've been doing?
1: No, I think that's exciting as a lot of probably what you're doing as well. When you're having conversations with people or you're doing events, you don't always know this direct impact that you have. But when people come back and they're saying, no, after hearing this, I made a change. I'm walking more. I've had one where she wrote, she's down 20 pounds. I remember years ago working with someone who was, and I can understand from this, very concerned about an upcoming procedure they were going to have and they say you know you get this plan for the timeline of your surgery the recovery your physical therapy and she goes but no one's told me about what i can expect from my brain and i'm scared with what i'm hearing can happen from going under anesthesia and things and so she really took up some of the elements of brain healthy lifestyle um from nutrition and movement and socialization and then when it went back she came back in she goes I don't need to have the surgery anymore. I'm doing well enough where the procedure that they recommended for her, um, she never specifically shared, but she goes, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if surgery is something we revisit in a few years, it's not something I have to worry about now. And so just seeing collectively how people pull in these different elements of their health and well-being, the knowledge that they accumulate, the providers that they're working with that help support them, I think shows this big picture of how those small changes really can lead to a big impact. And so I always like to appreciate people that come back and say, hey, we did something with this, or this was how even slight changes has impacted my life. And we'll see that more. We're not part of a clinical system where we're seeing all those tests and things, assessments that we can mark the changes. But for many of us, I think we know we can look at ourselves and know the impact that some of the things we do has. If we're going to hit that afternoon and we haven't been hydrated or the caffeine intake you're used to, you know, you also know how you perform after a terrible night's sleep. We, we see some of these things, but I think a lot of it, what you said, it's making that connection of the brain and how it's influencing our day and our cognition or the way we're wanting to perform. It's making that connection to then Motivate us, I think, in different ways to keep the good things going for us.
0: I love it, and yeah, keep the good things going for us is is an immense statement there. And uh, you really tied it in from uh, pediatrics to senior citizens to everyone in between. Um, how do people find you? How do they reach out to you? How do they find out about more events that you're doing? Uh, you know, how do they How do they reach you?
1: We have tried to keep it simple. We are at virtualbrainhealthcenter.com and you can find all of our upcoming events, podcast conversations, articles we contribute to or blogs on certain topics. It's all trying to be a one-stop shop and then that directory is coming soon. We're getting ready to pilot that. So we're hoping that if people have a suggestion for something that they're searching for that has been a challenge To let us know, we'll make sure we start building out this comprehensive brain health resource that people can have to find great practitioners, good, reliable information, upcoming science and opportunities, all that can support them wherever they are on their brain health journey.
0: I love it. This is fascinating. And I look forward to hearing more. Definitely check out Crystal, virtualbrainhealthcenters.com. And stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care.